All right, on Sunday, we started a new series on dispensationalism. What we are currently doing is we are, in a sense, kind of pretending that um, we're either back in 1917 or really any time after 1917, and we are pretending someone just picked up a Schofield uh, Bible for the first time. And what we're trying to, we're doing a couple of things. Not only do I want you to understand dispensationalism, I want you to really, really grasp, and I've emphasized this now a million times, the, the idea that no matter where, basically this is the way it works when you become a Christian, you're basically taught a system first, and then once you're taught that system, you read the scripture through the lens of that system, therefore you're actually reading your system into the pages of the Bible, you're not actually reading the Bible and pulling from it. And so we talked about the dangers of systems. And just remember, exegesis, you're doing what? And exegesis, what are you doing? You're pulling out from the text. Eisegesis, you are doing what? Reading into. Now, inevitably, we always accuse people of doing eisegesis, eisegesis. Everyone accuses everyone of doing eisegesis. But let me make it very clear. If you have a system, whatever your system is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's... And, you, and there are so many different systems in how you read Scripture. It could be lordship, non-lordship, reform, not reformed. It could be amillennialism, preterism, all of these different Areas of theology, we typically refer to these as different areas of theology, but they become systems. What they're not supposed to be is the hermeneutical guide that tells you how to read and interpret the Bible. That's what they shouldn't be, but inevitably they do what? They become just that, because you are always taught this is what you're supposed to believe. And then, and even just think about any discipleship course. They'll break it down into different sections and they'll tell you, this is what you're to believe about justification and sanctification. And then all they do is really, they give you the basic idea and then they just pull individual scriptures that seem to support the idea. They don't say, we're going to deal with this subject by looking at every scripture and working through it. Now I understand, for teaching purposes, sometimes maybe that's not the way to work, but the reality is the church should have fixed that a long time ago, because from behind the pulpit, you should be doing the kind of work that we're talking about, but it's never going to be done behind the pulpit. In fact, most people would argue the pulpit is the wrong place for it. It shouldn't be done there. But then then all you're doing is sitting there listening to a system. So we've tried to talk about the danger of this system. I did a special broadcast, I think, last night, where I spent an hour and 30 minutes demonstrating. Uh, I did Psalm 42 to 44, or Psalm 42 to 45, and I demonstrated using the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee because he says Psalm 42 through 45 is really about the Great Tribulation and about the Antichrist. Well, if you read Psalm 42 to 45, I'm sitting there totally baffled by how in the world that's coming from. Now, th- people accuse him of it's his dispensationalism that causes him to read Psalm 42 through 45 that way. Now, if that's the case, we would have a problem because no system should guide your hermeneutic. I cannot stress that enough. Now, inevitably, there's going to be there's going to be times where that is going to happen, right? And here, and, and this, and just listen to me. And I know people disagree with this as much as we want to pretend, because there's a couple of you know presuppositions that people bring, and and this is in many confessions of faith. One of the, the major claims of the Protestant Church after the Reformation is that the Bible is what clear, easy to understand, and that the average person should be able to grasp at least the basic facts. That's the claim. Well, I will argue, I can prove to you that's not true. Oh, go with just read it. Yeah, just read, read, read anything. But I, I will argue that the, all of the systems proves it's not true. Because all of those systems is an attempt to do what? To harmonize and explain. Well, I shouldn't need anything harmonized or explained if it's so abundantly clear. Now they will say, well, not everything is clear, but certain things. But even the part they say is supposedly clear. Like they'll say, everything a person needs to know about salvation is clear. How many different views on salvation are there? 
You get it through your own will. No, you get it through God's sovereign act. You can lose it. No, you, you got to do this to prove that you have it. Infused, imputed, like it's all over the place, right? So I will argue that all the systems. So what we're trying to do is I'm trying to give you a lot of information about we have to become more aware of how our reading of the Bible is really being guided by systems. Try to set that influence aside and read the Bible. Now, the systems are great to know. The systems are great to learn. But what should we be doing with each system? We should be able to realize when it is influencing our reading, and we got to set it aside. So we've talked about that, and we spent a lot of time with that, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we accomplished something with it. Hopefully. Because I think that's, that's important for us to realize because we, ha- we can't let that happen to us. We cannot let that happen to us. So what we've done so far is, and, and again, I would like to repeat everything that we've talked about, but I can't. But we're using the Schofield Reference Bible. And in pay, on page, at the very beginning, it's not even really, it's just you have the introduction, which we read. We have the preface, we read. And then what we have what he, he refers to as a panoramic view of the Bible. A panoramic view of the Bible. And in this panoramic view of the Bible, he, he gives us, and just immediately what I want you to see is it doesn't take long to see his system coming into play, the system coming into play. We haven't even got to the dispensationalism, right? Now, he gave us a, a little bit about what makes this Bible different. Remember, just remember, we went through the history of the English Bibles, and before the Schofield, what was the big, really, study Bible? The Geneva, which had a specific theological system attached to it, did it not? And now we jump, and that was 1560, and we jumped from 1560 to 1909, but 1917 is the edition we're looking at. And then Schofield had added some new features and some things. But clearly, he added a specific theological system known as dispensationalism. We're going to get there. I'm just taking a long ways because I want you to see that everyone may focus on the dispensationalism. There's a million things in here dealing with a system of thought, of idea that is being put in the minds of the Christian and then the Christian will take that, read it into the text and tell everyone they got it from where? The Bible, but in reality they didn't. And it's hard to try to convince people of that problem. But yeah, there was more I was going to say, but we'll stop right here. So we started looking at the panoramic view of the Bible. The first thing he said, he was gonna, he's gonna give us a number of things here to try to lay out this panoramic view. And the first thing he told us is that the Bible is one book. And he said, seven great marks attest to this unity. And we looked at those seven marks. I'm not gonna review all of them, but we, we went through all seven. If you, hopefully you wrote all seven down. But once again, what is the assertion? That the Bible is, there's unity. There's harmony. Now, I, 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 and, and the reason he wants to say is it's one book is he's claiming that all the different parts fit together and makes this unity. But I will, I, I, I know this makes people mad at me. I know it makes people mad at me, but I just, I just disagree. I, I just think that the unity that we think we see is, is there, that's why we have all the systems. That's why we have all the systems. And the systems um, are... They give an illusion, I'm going to say they kind of give an illusion of unity, and I will argue without the systems how much unity, I mean, just think about it. How many different systems are there? We can say this, is there unity and belief about the Bible? I I will argue that there's no, no unity in what people believe when it comes to the Bible, right? I mean... People may believe that the Bible is the word of God, but I'm saying when you come into interpreting it and understanding it, there is no unity. There is no unity because all the systems, are the systems in unity? No. So the systems are not in unity. That means how people read and interpret the Bible, there's not going to be unity. So therefore, if the Bible in itself was unity, then guess what? We shouldn't need the systems. I, I, yeah, there's, okay, but, so he gives us these seven marks of unity. I'm not going to repeat all of them. Now we're going to move to the second part here in his panoramic view of the Bible. You ready? Second, the Bible is a book of books. 
66 books make up the one book. Consider with reference to the unity of the one book, the separate books may be regarded as chapters. All right. So once again, he, he, he wants us to realize there's a unity. It's one, but it's made up of many. But the many should be viewed simply as what? As chapters of the greater of the book itself. All right. We, we could have a long discussion of how that works, but okay. He goes, but that is but one side of the truth. For each of the 66 books is complete in itself and has its own theme and analysis. Now, I do agree that they are complete in and of themselves. I do agree that they have their own theme and they have their own analysis. We should all agree with that. The idea is everyone thinks that that all fits together with the other, with the other, with the other, with the other. I'm arguing if it fit together so well, you probably wouldn't need all of the systems in order to try to make sense of that. He goes on to say, this is very important, in the present edition of the Bible, now he's referring to the, obviously the Schofield Bible of 1917, all right, now listen, in the present edition of the Bible, these are fully shown in the introduction and divisions. Does everyone see that? It is fully shown where? Introductions and divisions. What he means by that is that in the Schofield Bible, each book has what? An introduction. Guess who that introduction is put together by? Schofield. Now, everyone who has a Bible with an introduction, everyone who has a Bible with an introduction, or if you have a Bible handbook, or if you look up a, an entry and a Bible dictionary for the book, what do I always warn you about? I don't care if it's a Bible handbook. I don't care if it's a Bible dictionary. I don't care if it's a study Bible. If you read an introduction to a book of the Bible, what as you, what should you be able to identify and what should you be on the lookout for? Okay, well, we definitely should know it's not Scripture. Is it observational or interpretive, right? Is it observational or is it interpretive, right? If it's observational, it's just making observation about things in the text, right? There's this many chapters. They may even argue the, that the book breaks down into these divisions if it's clearly observational. Now, if you get 15 different books and they give you 15 different ways to break it down, then probably clearly it's not so observational, so first you have to de determine, is it observational or if it's interpretation? If it's interpretation, then what do you have to be careful of? Reading it into the text. Because the minute you read it into the text, you've done what? Eisegesis, which is supposedly the bad thing that everyone says no one is supposed to do. I say it happens 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in every church in America. Right? Because even, even when, whenever you study a book of the Bible, right? Even in this church, what do we almost always start with? An introduction and an overview, right? Okay, that overview is supposed to be observational. It's not supposed to be interpretive. But without fail, there will be some of that. So if you have a Schofield Bible or anyone who has a Bible, if I say, turn to Genesis, turn to Exodus, and you see the introduction it gives to the book, you have to determine what part of it is observational and what part is interpretive. And if it's interpretive, guess what you have to do? I am not going to read this into the text. I am not going to read this into the text. And, and look right here. You're going to see this show up instant, like almost immediately he's going to do this, for example, all right? So he says, in this edition, uh, he goes, uh, in the present edition of the Bible, these are fully shown in the introduction and divisions. It is therefore of the utmost, it is, uh, it is therefore of the utmost moment that the books be studied in the light of their distinctive themes. Now, I got no problem that we study the Bible in the light of the distinctive themes. But here's the thing. This is very important. Typically, how does this work? You've been going to church long enough. How does this work? You're told the distinctive themes when? At the end of the study or at the beginning of the study? At the beginning of the study. 
And guess what? When you're told at the beginning of the study, now guess what you're going to do with those distinctive themes? You're going to read them into the text. Guess what you just did? I said, Jesus, which is supposedly what we don't do. See, we don't do that. Only bad people do that. Always the other people do that. Right? Now, guess what? Guess where he's going to give you those distinctive themes? Look what he's going to say, right? All right. It is therefore of the utmost moment that the books be studied in the light of their distinctive themes. Genesis, for instance, is the book of beginnings, the seed plot of the whole Bible. Now, that may be true. I'm not going to argue whether it's true or not true. The danger is, once you accept one, you just inevitably, by de- inevitably, by default, you do what? You accept every time when he says, this is the theme of the book. This is the theme of the book. So now, guess what has happened to your hermeneutic? It's being driven by someone putting in your mind, that's the way that book should be read. Let me give you an example. You struggling to know if you're truly a Christian? Read 1 John. It will give you the test to know. Now, guess what they just did? They just told you how to read it. I come along and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's question that. I think it's a polemic against Gnosticism. And I think there's historical precedent for reading it that it's drawing a distinction between Gnostic ideas because every one of those tests really is a test against Gnostic concepts. When you read it as a polemic against Gnosticism, it takes on a whole different perspective. But you see, but guess what? Once you tell someone that and then you question the way they interpret 1 John, are you an antinomian? Well, where did that just come from? Well, you're not reading 1 John right. Oh, based off your in-depth exegetical reading of 1 John or based off the fact that you read a book that told you 1 John is the test book for someone's salvation. So I now must read it according to the presupposition you've imposed on the text. And if I don't read it according to your presupposition that you've imposed, well, then I'm wrong and you're going to leave the church. Okay, well, that's... Never mind. There's no... Like, the whole ministry, then, is just a joke. But you can't convince someone that's what they're doing. You're reading that into the text based off what? Because MacArthur told you that's how you interpret 1 John? Because so because Piper told you that's how you interpret Romans? They don't determine that. And if they do, then guess what? You basically have your own pope. What should determine is hours and hours and weeks and months and years of reading a book over and over and over and over and over and going, wait a minute, does this work? Testing it, hypotheses, questions, challenges. But see, you're not supposed to do that in church. I'm supposed to just come up to the pulpit and go, here's the book we're going to study. Here's how you interpret it. Here's the major themes. Now let's go through it really quick and we'll finish it in, you know, a couple of weeks. And everyone will be like, oh, pastor, that was a great study of First John. You've, you've, you've shown me so much. And nobody even understands the book. You just understood whatever commentary your pastor stole it all from. I, I, you can see I, I'm not a fan of the way it's done. I, I, I think it has to be challenged. But look immediately, look what he does here. So he gives what he thinks is the correct way to understand Genesis, right? And then we'll look what he says here. What's next? Matthew is the book of the king, meaning that, okay, I'm to focus on kingship here somehow, probably kingship of Jesus. Now, whether that's true or not true, I'm just telling you, you'll have, whenever you go to Bible college, you go to seminary, guess what you're done when you do an overview? They'll be like, hey, here's the book, and guess what? Here's the theme of the book, and here's how it should be read. The same thing happens in Hebrews, right? How many times have you been taught to read Hebrews, and you'll find out that Jesus is better than but in why he's telling you that Jesus is better, he, the writer of Hebrews offers these severe warnings to challenge your profession of faith. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think maybe the book is not there to challenge my profession of faith. I think the book is to ch- challenge the Jews who are about to lose their entire religious system that if they don't cling to what is better, they're not going to have anything. Else. 
Whoa, wait a minute. I just challenged the way you're typically told to read Hebrews. Now, I didn't, I didn't derive my meaning from some book. I realized the historic, when, when was it written? 68, 69. It's called Hebrews, and it clearly references the Old Testament continually, meaning it's probably, its audience was probably Jewish, huh? I wonder why he would be trying to warn Jews in 68, 69 AD. I wonder, I wonder. I, I derived it from those facts. Does that make sense? Now, I don't care if everyone tells me I'm wrong, but why, why do they become the authority on how I'm supposed to read the book? Because Christians sit in the pew, and it's so weird to me, because they just, they don't even realize it. They'll just accept these systems, now read it into the text, tell everyone that they're actually studying the Bible, when in reality they're not, okay? And then, at the same time, though, without doing much study, be able to judge everyone else and tell everyone else when they're wrong. The whole thing is a mess, and and I, I don't know how to get around. But you saw it right there. Did you not see it play out right there? So according to him, hey, you got to study, you need, you got to do, uh, in fact, as he said it again, um, he goes, um, and let's see, uh, let me read it again. Uh, 66 books make up uh, the one, uh, one book, considering with references to the unity of the one book, the separate books may be regarded as chapters. But this is one side of the truth. For each of the 66 books is complete in itself and has its own theme and analysis. And the present edition of the Bible, these are fully shown in the introduction and, and, and divisions. It is therefore of the utmost uh, moment that the book be studied in the light of their distinct, distinctive themes. I got no problem the Bible needs to be studied in light of their distinctive theme. The only thing I would question question is, who tells you what the themes are? I, 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 that would be my thesis. Hey, we're going to study the book and we're not going to know the themes. Now, I understand from a teaching perspective why, because if I can give you the themes, I can tell you what to be on the lookout for. But in a roundabout way, I'm doing you a disservice. What I should do is we just jump into the book having no idea where we're going and we get lost and confused together and say, I don't understand this book at all. Good, now you're doing Bible study. But nobody wants to do that. Well, that's how you should do literature. Well, sometimes, I don't know, a lot of literary, at least a lot of literary professors, I will always kind of give you an overview of the book and this is kind of what so-and-so is saying. And break it down. Well, good. Yeah, don't do that. All right. I think you should just say, hey, here's Shakespeare. Here's Sherlock Holmes. And just, good luck. Just start reading. Just start reading. And then halfway through, you're like, I don't understand what's going on. Have you discovered what the the author's writing style is? Do you understand what the author's trying to do? Do you understand, you know? I agree, that's the way it should be done, but I just think too many times, even in literature, they try to break it down to try to walk you through it to help you get to a conclusion, right? That's why it's like, um, and so many things like that. That's why uh, sometimes I love when people walk into a movie and they don't know what's going on, and you'll watch them get all confused. And it's like, you, you know, oh my goodness, do you not know how to analyze this, right? And they get, sometimes when people read a book, you're like, uh, what are you talking about? They, but so they, they sometimes then need to go find help. But I say, don't find help. Finish the whole thing and then try to piece it together. But in a roundabout way, we don't do that in Bible study because, and, and, and I know it's the inevitable fault of the church because the way the church is structured. The way the church is structured is people want sermons. Sermons is the death of Bible study. Because I, if you structure a sermon, what are you doing? You're just spoon-feeding people, usually a systematic, presuppositional approach to the text. And I just, I tell you what you're going to see before you see it. Then I show you what I told you was there, and then you magically see it. And then at the end, we summarize what I told you you're going to see and what we saw. And then everybody's like, oh, that's a good sermon. Oh, no, that... that it may be a good sermon, guess, but guess what it was? It was an attempt to blind you from actually seeing the text. Because the reality is, if we go walking into the text, what happens? Sometimes we're like, 
Does anybody know what's going on here? Does anybody have a clue? Because I don't have a clue. I'm so lost, I don't know what's going on. And we should, we should always feel that to some level. I try to make you feel that. Sometimes people like that, obviously many don't, but, but I just want you to see, he, he wants you to be, get the theme before. So I will argue, try your best to never, I, I know, I mean, I do the same thing. Now, the only difference is when we do it, a lot of times I will give you some overview and then I question the overview the entire time, right? Whenever we're using the Bible dictionary and we read through it, what do I always say? Is that interpretation or is that observation? And then I'm like, okay, well, we're going to forget that. We're going to forget that. So, so a lot of times I, I do it, but at the same time, I call it into question as much as possible. But I look, I understand from a teaching perspective, you're almost, you're almost told you have to do that because you're try, you are trying to help the people in the pew grasp it, right? Now, and, and some way, I don't know why I'm trying to convince the people in the pew how to grasp it because ultimately the people in the pew are the judge anyway. Right? I mean, I, I, like the whole thing is so, I, was, I talked about that today in a message on law and gospel because the, the audio I was reviewing was just maddening because on one hand they say it's the teacher's responsibility to teach the people, but it's the people's uh, responsibility to judge the teaching. Well, if you have the ability to judge me, well, what's the point of me going to Bible college or seminary? Right, right, right. but I'm just saying that if, the, if, if your job is to judge me, then what's the point of me going to school? Because that means you have the ability to judge me apart from going to school. So there's no point in going to Bible college or seminary. The whole system is a lie. People are like, I want a pastor who's got a good, solid education. Why? You're going to be the one judging him, telling him he's wrong. <laughs> okay, so I don't, I don't get it. But this, this whole thing... I'm not saying we've got it figured out, but I just want you to see right here what we're seeing a little bit of a problem. Are we not? All right. So we've, uh, we've looked at the first, uh, the first, if I can read this correctly. First, the Bible is one book. Second, the Bible is a book of books. And then number three, the books of the Bible fall into groups. Oh boy. The books of the Bible fall into groups. Now we spent 30 minutes not getting completely the direction I want to go, but that's okay. All right. Now, look at what he's going to say here. Are everybody ready to catch this? Speaking broadly, there are five great divisions in the scriptures. And these may be conveniently fixed in the memory by five key words. Christ being the one theme. I'll stop right here. We got a lot of uh, uh, major assumptions being thrown out at us, right? All right, so according to Schofield, now this is even before you get to the dispensationalism, right? Because everyone wants to just criticize the dispensationalism. He's doing what every study Bible in the world does, what pastors do, what seminaries do, what Bible colleges do. They impose a system. So now what you're told is that the Bible is broken down into how many parts? Five. And how many themes are there? One. Who is that theme? Christ. What scripture is used to prove this point? All right, let's go to Luke 24. Oh, you know how I loathe this passage, okay? If it's, unless I'm confused. All right, it's Luke 24. Luke 24, yep. Okay. All right, here we go. Luke 24, starting in verse 25, all right? Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, right? People are on the road to Emmaus, okay? Um, they, uh, Jesus kind of is walking along with them. They don't understand it's him. They're, they, that, or they're kind of confused about some of the things that are happening. And they'll look at tw- uh, Luke 24, 25. Then he said unto them, that's Jesus speaking, and he says, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, 
I do not understand the reading comprehension problem in the American church. I do not. And I hate to be mean, but I am tired of this verse being read in a way that it, it does not read the way everyone claims. Because everyone reads that and claims what? That all of Scripture is about Jesus. It does not say that. What does it actually say? He expounded all the things in Mo- the book and Moses and the prophets that spoke of him. Doesn't mean every part of it does. Just means he went to the parts that did. Because if the way it's typically interpreted is the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Well, that would have been a long walk, wouldn't it? That would have been a long walk. For him going, we're going to start in Genesis 1, now we're going to go to Genesis 2, now we're going to go to Genesis 3, now we're going to go to Genesis 4, now we're going to go to Genesis 5, now we're going to go to Genesis 6, now we're going to go to Genesis 7. Now clearly, he didn't walk for 15 years. Meaning, then, he went to specific parts within the Moses, the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets that did what? talked about him. That does not say that the theme of the entire Bible is Jesus. It does not say that. Yeah, just the Old Testament. Yeah, just the Old Testament. But even, but even there, it's not saying that the old, whole Old Testament. Right. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. There's a whole problem already. That's just talking about the Old, yeah, the old Testament. So I, I just, yeah. just ask just ask anybody you know who goes to church. Hey, what's the theme of the whole Bible? Guess what they're going to tell you? Jesus. Ask them for a verse to support it. They're going to go there. And, I, and my, my thought is always, if you can't read that, and you can't understand that, you should just hand me your Bible and we should just call it a day. That verse does not say that. It does not say that. Not even close. And again, just logic. There's no way he could have went from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament in one walk expounding all the things that are about him if all of it is about him. There's just no way. That would have taken forever. So like, my thought is, when when did the walk stop? Is it still going on? Right? So clearly, that means there were what? Specific elements. And how do we know for sure which elements are about him? They're referenced in the New Testament. That's the, be- that's, the o- that's the only definitive way for you and I to know, right? Unless we take a presupposition and go, oh, that's about Jesus. That's about- and how many uh, Bible study methods and devotional books will say, hey, today read Exodus chapter 7. What did you see about Jesus? Maybe nothing. Oh, how dare you say that? Well, if you're seeing Jesus in a chapter where Jesus isn't, then the problem isn't me. The problem is you. But they're saying, no, Jesus is in every chapter. No, he is not. Does everyone understand that? If the New Testament clearly shows them applying it to Jesus, then we can dogmatically say, yes, any other one, if there's something going on with the text that may not make some sense, and we're like, that's odd, there's something weird going on, then we may stop and go, huh, maybe there's, some, maybe there's more here than meets the eye. Maybe, maybe something is going on. And then we can at least what? Speculate. What can we not do is be dogmatic. But preachers will stand up and just like, Ooh, this next chapter in the Old Testament, there are three pictures of Jesus. And everybody's like, oh, that pastor, I've never seen that there. Yeah, you know why? Because it's not there. <laughs> okay, that's, 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 that's probably a good reason why you've never seen it there. All right, I can't. Oh, that verse, that verse, that verse. So, but he's already made, so he made two major assumptions here, right? What are the two assumptions? Let's go through these again. All right, the five divisions and one theme. We've already argued that there's not, I, don't, I will say there's not one theme. 
I, will, I, will, I don't know if there's any way to get that. I don't think the theme of Solomon or the Song of Solomon is the same as the theme of Ruth, unless you're going to so spiritualize the Song of Solomon. And if you start spiritualizing the Song of Solomon, it gets really, really, really gross. All right? Okay? That gets, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to even go there, okay? That, that, that's just, there's got some problems going on. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, he breaks them into five parts. What are the five parts? Preparation, manifestation, propagation, explanation, consummation. Those are the five parts. So he says the entire Old Testament is what? Preparation. Now, please note, please note, please note, please note. Wait. Now, listen, listen. Okay, does everyone see what I see right there when you see that? Everyone should be able to determine exactly what he just did right there. Oh, come on. Everyone should be able to see what he did there. If you can't see what's there, then you, you just don't need to read any systems. Okay. All five of those words are based off an assumption that Christ is the theme Because preparation is preparation for what? Christ. Next one, manifestation is the manifestation of Christ. The next one is propagation. Propagation, the message of Christ. Next, explanation, explaining Christ. And the next, consummation where everything is wrapped up in Christ now returns. It all is based off an assumption that the Bible is about Christ. Now, guess what? I could teach this and people would be like, oh, this is so good. Like when I was a young Christian in Bible college, this stuff, I would eat this stuff up, man. I'd be having outlines. I'm like, oh yeah, this is good. I got five parts, break it down. Oh yeah, this is good. This is good. I understand. Oh, and now give me someone to teach because I can teach it now, right? Hey, we're going to do a study of the Bible. Here's the way the Bible's broken down. It's broken down into five parts. And I'm like, oh, this is really good stuff. It's not good stuff. I just took it from something else. Yeah, but but the person sitting in the pew will love it. It'll be a nice little sermon. But the problem is, that's all based off an assumption that I already have challenged the entire assumption. Can the, can the entire Bible be broken down into five parts? Who, who knows? Right? Who knows? Does the Bible tell you how to break it down? No. It doesn't. All right? So, here we go. Let's read this. In other words, the Old Testament is the preparation for Christ, and the Gospels, He is manifested uh, to the world and Acts... He is preached and the gospels, he is propagated in the world and the epistles, the gospel is explained and in Revelation, all the purposes of God in and through Christ are consummated. Didn't I not tell you it was all based off that assumption? See, you should immediately have seen, you should immediately have been able to detect that. Because I'm telling you, if you can't detect that, then all you're doing is you're not being able, you've got to take every thought captive. Look, if we're not going to be Catholic, this is your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Because you're supposed to be judging me. So I shouldn't be the one showing you. You should be the one showing me, right? You're the judge. I mean, this is the whole weird thing about Christianity. I'll never understand. I don't understand that. I don't understand how that works. But, But okay, the point is, you should be able to detect, wait, 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 wait. That five-fold division is based off the assumption that the entire Bible is about Christ. If the entire Bible is not about Christ, then guess what happens to his five-fold division? Falls apart. Does that make sense? All right, and these groups of the books in turn fall, okay, and let me read these again, I'll read this again. And these groups of the books in turn fall into groups. This is especially true of the Old Testament, where which is in four well-defined groups. Over these may be written as memory aids. Now, so he's going to break the whole Bible into groups, and then those groups break into groups. And here are the groups. Are you ready? 
of the Old Testament, all right? Now, these groups don't seem to follow so much his overall theme. He kind of breaks these down in a, 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 a more a more specified way. You ready? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he he says this group is to be called what? Redemption. Redemption. All right? Maybe. We know that kind of idea fits Exodus really well, does it not? I don't know if it fits the rest, but okay. Next. Organization. He has Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all under organization. You see that? Now, people who love charts, they eat this stuff up. They'll be making charts all day on this stuff, right? Now, I, I look and I, I got no problem. I got no problem with charts. The problem is when the chart becomes a system that then does what? It then basically becomes your guide to interpretation, all right? Now, what's after, I got to go back here. Uh, after organization with poetry, and which books fall in this category? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Now, guess what? That may be the one that you could possibly use if all of those books are poetry. Then that would be a great way to classify them, right? All right, that'd be a great way to classify them. Then the rest of is called sermons. I think that may, that may actually be halfway accurate, right? And you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, most people would try to break those into major and minor prophets. I kind of like the idea of referring to them as sermons because all of them are filled with sermons that these prophets are preaching. Some may be, some may be rebuking. Some may be telling them about what, uh, just speaking God's word to them. And some of them may be predicting what's coming in the future. So I, I, I got no problem with that. that. That's actually pretty good, is it not? I, I think so. I think, that's pre- I think that's pretty good. All right. Now, um, let's see here. After he says, after, and he, just, he just offers that for the Old Testament. He doesn't offer one for the New Testament, right? Making sure I'm not missing a page. I'm not missing a page. All right. Okay. All right, then the next page here says, again, care should be taken not to overlook in the general groupings the distinctive message of the several books composing them. Thus, while redemption is the general theme of the Pentateuch, telling as it is does the story of redemption of Israel out of bondage into a good land and large, each of the five books has its own distinctive part in the whole. Now, okay, now he's trying. So even then, even him, he, he's at least acknowledging this. Well, redemption may be the overall, but be careful because each book has its own individual. <laughs> okay. And now he's going to break it down. Genesis is the book of beginnings um, and explains the origin of Israel. Exodus tells the story of the deliverance of Israel. Leviticus, the worship of Israel as a delivered people, numbers the wanderings and failures of the delivered people, and Deuteronomy warns and instructs that people in view of their approaching entrance upon their inheritance. Now, I think those are relatively good descriptions of those particular books, don't you? I think those are very observational. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't mention Christ. You see, isn't that interesting? It's about Israel and what God was doing to Israel, which I think is important, which I do. I appreciate he emphasizes this Israel, but just note now, he doesn't even mention Christ in any of that. But Christ is supposed to be the overall theme. You see how convoluted it can all get? See, these systems work good from what? Where? From afar. When you start digging into the system and start asking questions, Guess what sometimes starts happening? You're like, what just happened to my system? You've got to keep it far. Because the average person in the pew, are they going to question much of the system? No, most of them won't even write it down. How many churches people don't even take notes? Pastor can break it down for 18 hours. Most people are not going to. And guess what? By the next Sunday, anybody going to even remember the basic outline? No, nobody's going to even remember it anyway. So really, it's just a waste of time anyway to even have sermons. You just shouldn't even have church. Because, I mean, really, nobody's going to remember it. Now, some will write it down. 
But I'm saying, because no one's going to really, is anyone going to go home for the most part and investigate it? And no, no. So it just becomes, it sounds all good, all right? Now he says, the poetical books um, record the spiritual experiences of the redeemed people and the varied scenes and events through which the providence of God led, led them. The prophets were inspired preachers and the prophetical books consist of sermons with brief uh, connection or connecting and explanatory passages. Um, The two prophetical books, Ezekiel and Daniel, have a different character and are apocalyptic largely. Now, once again, none of that he mentions what? No mentions of Christ. He's dealing with the specific elements of the book. And I will say that is a much more observational an accurate representation of what's in the book. I, the only thing I do love is he's very clear to mention about whom? Israel. I love that, right? Because I think that's the one major strong point of dispensationalism. All right, but now the point is, is see, he gives you, when he breaks it down, now he's kind of getting a little bit more accurate, right? But guess what? When people start preaching these books, they will revert back over and over and over in their sermons to finding what in those, sermon, in those passages? Finding Christ. Why? Well, they'll say that's the overall theme, but they do so just out of the necessity of preaching a sermon. Because do you want a preaching a sermon where I'm just breaking down basic historical elements and facts? Well, you should. Okay. But the reality is people want, I, I, I need something spiritual. I need something uplifting. I need, I need, I want, I want three points. I want, okay. And it's like, well, um, I'm sorry, the text is not really conducive for that. Do you want the text or do you want a sermon? And what people should say is, I want the text. That's what they should say. They should say. I know that's about the dumbest thing I've ever said in my life, but in reality, I wish that's the case, but it doesn't work that way. All right? So let's go through these again. He's broken this down. First, the Bible is one book. Second, the Bible is a book of books. Uh, third, the books of the Bible fall into groups, and then those groups fall into more groups. Supposedly, the overall theme is Christ. However, when he breaks the groups down, he doesn't, he doesn't mention Christ. All right. Number four, the Bible tells the human story. Okay. Here we go. All right. You ready? The Bible tells the human story, beginning logically with the creation of the earth and of man. The story of the race sprung from the first human pair continues through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. With the 12th chapter um, begins the history of Abraham and of the nation of which Abraham was the ancestor. It is that nation Israel with which the Bible narrative is thereafter chiefly concerned from. The 11th chapter of Genesis to the second chapter of Acts of the Apostles. The Gentiles are mentioned, but only in connection with Israel, but it is made increasingly clear that Israel so fills the scene only because trusted with the accomplishment of the great worldwide purposes. Deuteronomy 7, 7. Now, we could argue, and we, we, could, we could debate this. It, it, is the Bible, he, what was the exact way he say, stated it? The Bible tells the human story. Now, is it a story of humans or is it a story of God and his interaction with humans? Especially, and I do agree, from where he starts in Genesis 11 up to, say, Acts, there's no question it's a story of God's interaction with a nation. Right? So I, I would say it's a story of God and his dealings with man primarily through a nation of Israel through that section that he identified. And the only reason I would say I would start with God and not with man is because how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God. So observationally, I would say it starts with God and then it's it's this evolving story of God's dealings with man, but the emphasis is not on man, the emphasis is on God. And God's dealing with the, those people, primarily from uh, X, or Genesis 11 till Acts, it is about Israel. There's no way to get around it. No way to get around it. And I do appreciate he's willing to say that. I would just state it's a story about God's dealing with man. Man's involved, but it starts with God. That would be my 
That would be my, my start because that's where the Bible starts, correct? Right, that, that's how I would go. So now he said, and then I do agree that in that whole section, the Gentiles are mentioned, but only in their connection with Israel. Right, I cannot stress that enough. Now that's all good observational stuff, right? Next, I'm going to run out of time here. We're going to finish this. We're going to finish this. All right. The appointed mission of Israel was number one. Here's what he says. The appointed mission of Israel was you ready? Number one, to be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. Right? He says that was their, their appointed mission, to be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. Two, to illustrate to the nations the greater blessedness of serving the one true God. Number three, to receive and preserve the divine revelation. And number four, to produce the Messiah, Earth's Savior and Lord. The prophets foretell of a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. So what, are, what was supposedly the purpose of the appointed mission of Israel? What was number one? To be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. Number two? To illustrate to the nations the greater blessing, blessingness of serving the one true God. And number three? To receive and preserve the divine revelation. And number four? To produce the Messiah, Earth's Savior and Lord. Now that last sentence, I'm going to wait a second for. Now look at the, the, the supposed purpose and mission of Israel. What do you note when you read that purpose and mission of Israel? Did they do any of those things? Well, they did one of them. You could say they did kind of two of them. They produced the Messiah. I mean, they just, you know, kind of just default, right? Okay. God had to preserve them to do that, okay? And they did, in a sense, they did preserve the revelation of God to some level, right? Can we agree with that? Everything else, they failed. Right? And, and you could argue, you could argue, they, did, they almost didn't, didn't do a very good job of preserving it because they lost it numerous times, right? And then you even had the king and Jeremiah cutting it up and throwing it into the fire, right? So they kind of did what they could to not preserve it. God kind of had to step in and do it for them. And they almost corrupted and wiped out their entire lineage of Christ, right? Because you got uh, Jeconiah showing up, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Jeconiah showing up there, or Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, whoever the king was that was uh, Jeconiah. Remember, he has multiple names. Jehoi, Chen, uh, Jeconiah, okay, right. The, the one that is cursed. So they, they did plenty of things almost to stop that from happening. So God had to step in really to do that. So you think about it, everything that they d- had to do, they didn't do. And, what, and God had to step in to really do the rest for them. Yeah, I mean, they almost, they almost didn't even pull that off. Right? That's what I'm saying. They, corrupted, they almost corrupted the line. They were killing babies. They were, they, they were doing everything to, to mess themselves, uh, to not accomplish any of these things. So I will argue, now this, this really gets into a, a deep theological question. You could say God called them to do those things. Because he has scripture showing where God said, do this, do this. I got no problem with that. But God knew when he called them to do it, they were not going to do it. So then what was the ultimate purpose of Israel? Because he knew they were not going to do any of those things. And that he was going to have to step in really even to get those last two things accomplished. Okay. All right. Okay. So, okay, we, okay well, we can put that down if you want. It's possibly a, a nation to show his power. I think he showed his power in all the nations, right? He used Babylon. He was the one who controlled them, right? He raised up Cyrus to let the people go. So he showed his hands in all the nations, right? Showed them in Pharaoh. I mean, the whole reason he hardened Pharaoh's heart is he could demonstrate that he was greater than all their gods, right? So I think he, he constantly showed his power throughout all the nations. 
I think there may be another possible explanation to why. I, I, I'm just I'm trying to let y'all see it. Okay, to demonstrate his faithfulness. Now, that may be a good one, right? He chose them, and then he remained faithful even though they are unfaithful. Okay, that's a good one. But there, I think there's one big one here. I think there's one big one that we cannot miss. One big one that, that Israel served as uh, really a, maybe their primary function. Well, I've only mentioned it about a million times in our long gospel series. Okay. Well, covenant. Okay. This is an entire nation that was given the law of God and told to obey it. And they never did. Israel is a perpetual lesson, a perpetual reminder that no one has ever kept the law, nor can they. And their only hope is God has to step in and take care of the problem for them. Now it shows God's faithfulness. I do agree with that because God chose them and elected them. He will then ultimately redeem them and save them. That's why we believe God can't be done with Israel because if God is done with Israel... Then we're, then we're out of luck, right? Because are we any better at keeping the law than Israel? No. So whenever people talk about the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law of God, all you got to say is, did you read about Israel? They failed, they failed, they failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. The law does not save you. The law can't prove you're saved. It will only condemn you. All right? Does that make some sense? Maybe? Okay, I hope that makes sense because I think, it's, I think it's the most important lesson from them. Now he says at the end, he says, the prophets foretell a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. Now just make sure you understand that sentence. The prophets foretell a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. Let's make it very clear. First, that would have been somewhat massively controversial in 1917. Because number one, there wasn't in Israel. Number two, they weren't in the land. Okay, so that would have been controversial. Number, uh, number three, a good portion of theology at the time would have said, not true, not true. God is done with the nation and now he has given it to the church. That's a controversial statement. You should highlight that statement or at least write it down because this is a major part of... Now, the only problem is, now, now, now we got to be very careful here. Has he gotten even to the text? No. So what did he just do? He just gave you a presupposition to read into the text. We do have to be fair here, right? I agree with the statement, but I have to acknowledge, it's, once you have that statement before you start reading the Bible, it's much easier to see that statement in the Bible. Does everybody see that? All right. Does everybody see it? Right. The prophets foretell a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. All right. Here we go. Um, The biblical story of, well, we're just going to have to stop. There's, ah, man. Ah, why? Who created time? They were evil. All right. Fine, bring me the person who created time. I want to talk to them. All right? Okay? Some people say it was God, but we had a whole semester of debate about that at Grace University, and nobody, we still don't know who created time, and we don't even know what time is, and does time even exist, and I don't know. It's supposed to be our Genesis class. It was like, Genesis, in the beginning, God created. And then the professor's like, did God create time? And then next, six months later, we were like, we still didn't know. We still don't know. And I don't even know what time is. And does time really exist? Or is it a figment of our own imagination? Or is it man's attempt to try to measure uh, eternity? Well, we can't measure eternity. So what's the point of having time? Well, I don't know. I'm like, well, then if, I, if time doesn't exist, then I can show up to this class whenever I want, right? Because there's not a time, right? Okay. Yeah, that was, a, that was a wonderful course. I'm glad I paid the money. Well, the military paid the money for that. So, all right. But there you have it. 
Now, I know I spent a lot of time, and I know I'm, re I'm really driving this point home. Once we're done with this, we'll get right into, well, we're going to deal a little bit with the gap theory just so that you see it, because he throws out a system right at the beginning of Genesis. But once we get past the gap theory, then we can just really go through the parts of dispensationalism, and I won't have to then drive this point home about how the system does what? Guides the interpretation, and we can't let that happen. I just want you to know you've been doing that your whole Christian life. That's how I was, I mean, I didn't know any better. You go to school, you learn a system, and then you're just supposed to go preach the system, and then you're supposed to stay true to your team. And then I was the one, of, I did a couple of things wrong. One, I wouldn't just go to one kind of school. I went to every kind of school I could go to. And those schools were everything from dispensational to amillennial, you name it, reformed, not reformed. So that got me in trouble, right? Because now I'm hearing all the different systems and I would never be content when a pastor told me a system. I would not be content to just say that system is right. I'd be like... What about this? 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 I thought for a brief moment that, okay, if I'm going to be a pastor, I got to just preach the system. But what I envisioned is that everyone sitting in the pew would be like, no, pastor, don't just give us the system. We want to study. We want to struggle. We want to find truth. We want to figure it out. Come on. Don't just give us. Well, What I should have done is just said, how to write, I should have just read a book on how to write 30-minute sermons and uh, influence people and make people happy, and then I could have just had a good, happy ministry, but I, I would have been miserable because it would have been like going to a play and playing a character. And I, didn't, I, I, I thought the pulpit was supposed to be not playing a character. I thought it was supposed to be me and you trying to do what? Figure it out. But it doesn't really work that way, does it? All right? So there is uh, his pan panoramic view. And in the panoramic view, just realize, we, we, I think we could see, there was clearly some interpretation and presupposition that anyone taking it then would just simply, from that point forward, what would they do going forward? They would tell everyone that what's the theme of the Bible? Christ. And I know the fact that I say that it isn't, Everyone loses their minds. Reformed people are like, you're not reformed. Don't even call yourself reformed. Other people say, you're not even a Christian. You should not even ever preach. Or maybe I could just read the Bible and go, I don't know if I see Christ there because uh, I don't know what's going on there, but I don't know if I see Christ. Now, if I come to a passage where I think Christ is seen, I got no problem going, hmm, that's hard not to miss it, right? Considering... Oh, yeah, concerning Christ is called our Passover lamb. Maybe, maybe I could see Christ in the Passover, right? Maybe in Psalm 110, I, I, oh, wait, Hebrews quotes that. Maybe, like, you know, I can go on and on and on and on. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, Christ, Christ, see, oh, wait, Christ, wait, the, the Bible, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. Oh, wait, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. Okay, uh, so I like some of those things, I can see Christ, and so some people, when you say that I don't see them as the theme, they lose their minds. I'm just saying that there's passages there that you got to be careful because I think when you apply them to Christ, I don't, uh, who, who gets to decide? And once again, that allows what to become the authority? The system or the presupposition, not the text. Let's study the text and we'll go, hmm, I don't know what to do here, right? I don't know what to do here. Like you read Genesis 1 and 2. It seems to imply that God spoke everything into existence and he did so in six days. And when I get to Exodus, it seems to reinforce that because he says, in six days I created, the seventh I rested, and so do likewise, basically. You work for six days and rest the seventh. That would seem to imply that he's interpreting those six days as literal days. That's what the text seems to indicate. Now, I understand that you can look at a million other things and go, well, man, I don't know if that fits. I don't know if that works. But what am I supposed to do? If the text is the authority, all I can say is this is what the text says. 
You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It may not, but that's what the text says. I, I, don't, I don't know what else I can do. Well, you got a snake talking to a woman. I understand. But is there anything in the Bible that indicates I should not interpret that literally? That, that's, that's, that's the struggle for the Christian. It's not like, well, my system says we shouldn't. Well, congratulations. We don't care about the system. We care about the text. And we can see he imposed a lot of ideas upon the, the text. And, that's it. and we haven't even got to the dispensationalism. And what he did there, you probably are all carrying Bibles that do the exact same thing in its own way. And if you don't have a Bible next to you, you've got a Bible dictionary or you've got a Bible handbook. And guess what? They'll do the same thing as that was done. And, and I don't know how we can ever correct that. All right, let's stop. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I hope we are beginning to see the danger of our systems and how in many cases our systems cover up our eyes from seeing. We can't blame anyone for that other than ourselves. Forgive us for uh, taking the words of man and replacing your word with those words. Forgive us for that and help us get back to acknowledging the influence of man's words and then trying to get back to your words and your words alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,